Hey, good morning. I so, so appreciate our worship team. You know, man, what do you, what do you say? Um, I, I come up here so many weeks, and, you know, we, I talk to my brother. I usually spend a little bit of time with my brother through the week and whatnot, and we, we talk about some things. We talk about the sermon. We talk about church. We, we talk about things, and um, I, I come up here so many Sundays, <laughs> we come up, I come up here so many Sundays, and um, you know my goal, Jay, is to open the Word of God, and for us to understand it and to make an application into our lives. Right? That's a reasonable desire, but it's so much more than just this uh, intellectual ascension through the understanding of Scripture. What I want more than anything else, is to be able to provide for you from God's Word um, such substance that it will affect and change your life. I mean, at the end of the day, if what we're sharing and doing isn't changing and impacting us, man, I feel like I'm just, just treading water, to say the least. So my desire this morning as we open up the Scriptures is that not only would it find a place to be received in, in your mind, but also a place in your heart, in your spirit, and that you would be stirred in your soul. And I don't mean stirred emotionally. I mean uh, uh, turned over in your heart to where the things that are gathered in our worship is something to be considered for application out there. And on a Monday, Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, that thing then fleshes itself out and you understand the value of what you ascertained on a Sunday morning as we worshiped and we studied God's Word, right? So it's not just being able to come in and say, hey man, we just finished chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. And I understand it a little more. It's got to be more than that. There's got to be a, a supernatural expression of God through His Word, through the power and the demonstration of His Spirit, the dunamis that we talked about last week, that, that expresses itself in a context out there where the world is. Because you know where the world's not? In here. And the scripture never says anything about calling the world into the church. But there is a great commission where Jesus calls the church to go to the world. And we have to do it in a manner that is effective. And the only way it can be effective is through the power of God's word and, and, and the power of God's spirit. Amen? No other way. So as we approach the scripture this morning... And it's just going to be verses 6 through 10. We're going to finish up. As we approach that, it's just not intellectual grasping that we're after. We want something to seize our hearts this morning. Amen? That is the intention. The intention this morning. All right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to read all 10 verses out of chapter 1. And the reason we're going to read that is so that there will be a transition 
from last week because we literally stopped in verse 5 when in fact verse 5 rolls into verse 6. So you have to understand the context. We're not just going to pick up at verse 6 with nothing leading up to it. It wouldn't even make sense really. We want to see the connective fiber of the scripture. Right? So let's pray and then we're going to read this. Right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Turn there. Get your, your whatever form, whatever Bible you have with you. Get it ready. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray, oh God, in the name of Jesus, that you would flood this place with your spirit, that hearts at this very moment would be aerated, holes punched in, broken open, exposed to your word, that it might take in the nourishment of the truth of your scripture delivered under the influence of your spirit. Oh, God, change us. Change us. Oh, Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus and the sons and daughters of God said, Amen. Amen. Let me impart to you an encouraging report. Matter of fact, I have two encouraging reports this morning. Uh, one being a report upon the generosity of the church last week. As we stepped in to the life of a hurting family, a pastor, lifelong pastor, and his wife who had lost a son, uh, they have no real tie to our church other than uh, some personal ties of a couple people uh, who uh, be in my family and a few more. Some of you know them, Chloe. Some of you know them. Last week, your generosity allowed me to deliver to him nearly $3,400. Now, that, that, was, that was born in an instant. And it was because of the Spirit of God expressing through you to them. The church is much bigger than TDC. And God showed that. The second good report is we prayed a couple weeks ago for uh, Kevin Kappel. And he was having scans done and having blood work done. And uh, Kevin, uh, I'm going to give you about... Ten seconds, don't take any more, I'll, I'll set you down. Stand up and tell us what the report was, brother. <laughs> hey, brother, I was, just, I, was just kidding. I was just kidding about the ten seconds. He took me serious. Then. Yes, uh, the, the scans came back clean. Nothing, nothing showed on scans. He waited for blood tests to come back and, and so forth, and they came back clean. So blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And let me say something else to a sister this morning. Um, and I told her yesterday, but I want to say it in the company of the, the church body because I want her to know we are for her. I preached a funeral Friday. I attended a funeral Saturday and Jess, I could not have been more proud of you. 
If you were my own daughter, I could not be more proud of you. And I will say with the utmost confidence, not to patronize you, but to encourage you. I believe God would have me say this to you. Well done. In good form. Amen. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 through 10. Let's read this together. It says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. As we read this scripture, you'll recall what we covered last week. If you're not sure what we covered last week, you can jump on the pod being the podcast and you can, you can enjoy all 45 minutes of that. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with the power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. This is where we're going to start this week. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Father, bless the reading and the preaching of this word. In Jesus' name, amen. The very first verse that we're covering this week, verse 6 says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now listen, I don't know how many, I, I know there's a few of you guys out there. I don't know how many of you guys out there uh, know what an, uh, a, an emulator is. Anybody know what, any of you, you uh, techie people know what an emulator is, right? An emulator, computer guys, you know, okay, we got... Anybody else out there? Because, man, okay, we got another one. Anybody above 45 know what an emulator is? Anybody? Larry's back there on the control panel. He, he knows what an emulator is. Okay, my brother, Luis's younger brother back there, uh, he, he knows what an emulator is. Uh, Luis's father came in this morning. I saw him and I thought it was Luis's brother. I said, Luis, you know, Luis, you look older than your dad. But... But, uh, uh, but an emulator, I, I, I want to tell you what an emulator is and what an emulator does, okay? By, by definition, an emulator essentially allows one computer system, that being the host computer, to imitate the functions of another, that being the guest computer. With the help of an emulator, a host system can run software programs and programs which are designed for the guest system. For example, if you're running a, a, a platform or a, a, a system or a program, an app on an Apple product, 
all right, and it's designed for an Apple product, then if you were to take and install an emulator on an Android device or a Microsoft device, it would then allow that device that has the emulator then to run the software on an opposing platform. Are you with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? So things originally designed not to run on that given platform, with the utilization of an emulator, it can then identify and run the program or app that it wasn't necessarily designed to run. It imitates it. Without the emulator, there would neither be a connection nor the ability to run that program. Let me make a little quick spiritual application. For you and I, as host, and God as the guest, the Spirit of God is the great spiritual emulator that God sets within us that then allows us to recognize the guest and then imitate the guest, that being God, who then can, can work and display himself in our lives through the emulator being the spirit, right? Are, do, you, do you track with me on that? You understand the application? Now, I don't want you going out and saying, oh, no, no, Trenton, I went crazy up there. He's talking Bill Gates and, and some of this crazy, non, and trying to draw parallels between Microsoft and Apple and this, that, and another, and God. You understand what I'm saying, right? Right? So when the scripture says this, listen. When the scripture says, you became imitators of us and the Lord, the Greek word for imitators is mimetes, and it simply means to emulate or to mimic. The That's where we get the word to mimic. When your son mimics you, when you're, as a dad, look at your 12, 13-year-old son, and you say, take out the trash, and he grabs the trash, and he walks away going, take out the trash. That's mimete right there. That's what's happening right there. That's what he's Im imitating, right? But listen to what the scripture says right here. It says that there are two objects of imitation in verse 6. This is what it says, and, and they're identified clearly. He says, you have became imitators of us. Now, this is significant because who is us? It is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, that, that is extremely important because you have to understand that it's not just Paul, this super apostle, who has the wherewithal and the strength provided by the Spirit to be an imitator of Christ. He says all of us are able to do this. So you became imitators of us. That's one group that he identifies. And then he says, and of the Lord. The implication in the way the scripture is established and set up and the way that it reads is basically like this. By imitating us, you've imitated Jesus. Because we're imitating Jesus. So the notion then becomes, hey man, you guys were imitating us as we're imitating Jesus. So when it's all said and done and the dust settles, we're all imitators of Jesus. Right? Right? Now, here is something that you and I need to consider is that something that you and I would say is, is, would, would be real and fleshed out in our lives, Jesse? If I were to say to my son Clark, you imitate me, would you then come behind Clark and say, Clark looks a lot like Jesus? Or would you say Clark looks a lot like his dad? The idea 
as followers of Jesus, with the influence that he gives us, is that we live such a life that when someone imitates, models in a sense, mimics our life, it then should mirror the life of Christ. We should not be people who say, don't do as I do, but do as I say to do. But we should be people who say to our children, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, follow me as I follow Christ. That's exactly what Paul said. And so he says to this young church, now remember, remember context, this church was born in three weeks. This wasn't some old church, man, that had been established through convention and, and, and church growth seminars. This wasn't some church, man, that had been around and, and been spending old money and spreading the gospel. This was a church that was three weeks old, man. I'm talking 21 days. And Paul says, you've become imitators of us and of the Lord. That's a powerful, powerful thought. And I love what Paul said, if you go back to the previous verse, he said this, when we're talking about imitating us, and we need to be a reflection of Jesus. Paul said, you know how we lived among you. Paul's not skirting the issue here. Paul ain't, skirting, Paul ain't saying, I'm getting out under the weight of the responsibility. Paul, man, Paul's in there, man. He said, I lived this thing. I lived this before you. So did Timothy and so did Silas. This is obtainable. To allow Jesus to live through you is obtainable. Then he says this, and, and I, I will say this. Uh, we, we do have to ask, we do have to ask whether or not our imitation of Christ is based on our emotions, our, our own perception, or are they based upon the revelation of the life of Christ in the Scriptures? When I say I'm a Jesus man, and I'm wanting to do love deeds and power deeds and Jesus deeds, what am I saying when I say that? Am I talking about a Jesus that you have created in your own mind or, or a cultural, a reflective Jesus, or am I talking about the Jesus of the Scripture? Because sometimes our perception of what we're doing and the reality of what we're doing isn't one and the same. Listen, in 1972, I was two years old. Let me tell you a story about that. No, I'm just kidding. In 1972, there was a concert that was aired for the first time. The first concert ever that was uh, satellite-driven. You could see it all around the world. The very first concert ever, 1972. I believe I'm correct. And it was Aloha from Hawaii. And it was Elvis Presley. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. He, he's with me. You with me, brother. Okay, listen, listen. Listen. My sister, a few years later, buys this album, right? The Aloha from Hawaii album. And Johnny B. Good. You know, suspicious minds. You know, all those, all, all, all those, right? This time you gave me a mountain. That kind of, I mean, all of them were out there, right? And I remember her playing that thing on that old junkie record player. 
and we lived out on Ben Crawford's farm over to LaRue County. I mean, we were in the sticks in, in my sense, what I perceived, but I remember her playing that. And I remember as a young boy at that time, so it was around 77, 78, I remember, I'd be about seven or eight years old, I would hear that music played, and I would literally walk into the room like I was coming out from behind the stage, like I'm coming out to sing. You know what I'm talking about? The drums start playing. You know, you know, Angie, you know what I'm talking about. Belinda, you know what I'm talking about. That music start playing, and here he comes. Look, he, he, he's, he's doing this, right? Here I am in this little country house in the backwoods. Dwayne knows where it was at. And, and uh, uh, she, Karen be playing Elvis live from Hawaii. Man, I'd, I'd, I'd started, I'd, I was waving at the walls. And before you know it, when everyone was gone, I would slip in there, man, I'd, I'd play it myself. And I'd, I'd put that on her, and everyone's right, legs started to, you know what I'm talking about? Hey, I couldn't help, it just started. That leg just started, listen. And I remember singing, call out a song, and I'm telling you, our voices were basically identical. <laughs> I'm telling you, I hit every note he hit. I had the little uh, vibrato. I, I had the tremors, the whole thing. You know, I even had a little curl. I, had, you know, I, I was, man, I was Elvis. And I remember the first time I sung to somebody. They said, you ain't Elvis. <laughs> right? So my perception of what I was mimicking or imitating wasn't really based in reality. It was what I perceived myself doing. And so sometimes we need a reality check when we think we're uh, modeling or imitating the life of Jesus. Man, and we've got to kind of size that thing up against the Scripture. And say, well, this is what Jesus looked like in the Scripture. Is that how I'm looking in my life? And if I'm not looking like that, then I'm not really imitating Him. Right? Okay. All right. We can move on now, right? We've covered that. No, I will not be taken request. No. This is what the scripture says. Listen. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message. Now listen. For you welcomed the message. This is the context in which the message is delivered. Okay? In the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. He's not speaking of the Thessalonians welcoming the message that they had not yet heard in the joy of the Spirit. I'm not talking about prevenient grace here. What he's talking about right here is that they welcomed the message while Paul, Silas, and Timothy were in that very condition. You've got to understand this. They were the ones in the midst of severe suffering, and they were the ones delivering the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul literally clarifies this. He says, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. The words suffering is flips us, flips us. And it literally means suffering, means to be constrained and impacted. The, the visual that I would give you would be one of a man stuck in a vice and clamped down. That's when he says suffering, that's the image he's creating and portraying. Some of you felt this, right? 
But then he says this, in the midst of being in the clamp of persecution and suffering, we were able to deliver this message that you received in what way? With the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So in chapter 2, verse 2, when it says, And as you know, but with the help of God, our God, we dared to tell you his gospel. The help of God was the joy of the Spirit of God. And I'm telling you, there is nothing more impactful than for you and I to deliver the message of God under difficult, vice-clamping Pressing, suffering, and persecution, and in the spite, in spite of all those things we're going through, able to deliver the word of God with joy. Knowing that the joy or the word of God itself is the cause for the suffering. And yet, he says in verse 2, we dared to do this. We brought it to you joyfully engaging in suffering because it was worth it. It was worth it. The only way we navigate suffering and hardship and living the life out. Because when he says you receive the message, a lot of times, man, we're thinking that the message he's talking about is just one spoken. But that's not what he said in the first verses. He said we came to you not only with a spoken word, but in the power. So the message, part of the message was what was articulated in the gospel. Part of the message was how it was articulated. How it was expressed. It was in the life of those given it. When Paul says to the Thessalonians, I love you with this gospel and it's costing me skin to deliver it and yet I'm delivering it, what do you think their perception of that was? Oh, he must really love us. Oh, he must really, look how he suffered for this. No wonder Imitating Paul then is imitating Christ. Is that not what Jesus did for you and for me? Loved us so much that he endured that joyfully, willingly to deliver that message to you and to me, right? And that's what it says in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And then he says... And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia. And Achaia, tupos in the Greek, model, it's where we get the word typos. It's where we get the word, or the term in English, typewriter. And you say, well, what, how does typewriter come out of this term model that's derived from the word typos? Who's the, let, 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 me, let me give you the definition. All right, it means this. The mark of a blow. So when he says, and so you become a model, 
the word tupos, which typos comes from, when he says, so you became a model, right, a type of a blow. There's been a blow administered into your being. It's, now, how many of you, now, I'm going to get some of you guys on this. Some of you are going to volunteer for this because guess what? You owed, right? All right? How many of you took typing in school? All right, oh, come on, come on, come on. Is that the only, this is the only people who took typing? Okay, we got some typing, okay. The only class I took in school that I even use anymore, right? I mean, it's the most valuable class I believe I ever took was typing, right? Right? Well, do you remember in your, your typewriting class being on a real typewriter and there was weight to the keys and when you smacked that T, I mean, you felt the key, I mean, being projected through that stroke and make an impact onto that paper. You remember this? And listen, and if you struck it time and time again, the imprint of that given letter would go deeper and deeper and deeper. And it made no difference. How much whiteout you put on that paper, the impression was so deep that your teacher could see the error that you had previously made. And you couldn't lie about it. No, no, that was, that was error-free typing. And you've got deep, imprinted lettering that exposes that blow after blow was administered to that paper, and impression after impression was administered. That's what he's talking about. When he says, man, you have become a model, that's what he, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, he's literally saying the blow of Christ has been done repeatedly in your life through the exposure. How? The exposure of God's Word, the power of God's Spirit, time and time again. It doesn't matter at that point how the world tries to cover it. The impression has been made and is so deep it becomes undeniable and even to the blind recognizable. Oh, what we need right, is to become imitators. But how do we become imitators? By becoming models. We need the blow. Man, we need the mark or the strike of God's word and the strike of God's presence repeatedly applied to our lives that this model would be on display for everyone. Hmm. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, when he says, we are God's handiwork, in LT, says, masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know what he's saying? We are marked. Pow. You can feel the weight of that key. Pow. 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 And you know what we need to do? We need to get up in the mornings. And we need to open ourselves like a freshly exposed eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. Slide into the typewriter of God's affection and his image and allow that image to post, to be marked. I mean deep. And the next day marked again. And the next day marked again. And the next day marked again. And the next day and the next day and the next, how many marks are too many tread? There are no way to reach too many marks, too many blows. It is to your benefit to have this done as often as possible. 
Okay, okay, we're, 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 we're going to rush on through here. It's verse 7. But he said, you have become a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And it's this idea when we're marked like that and we've been struck by the image of God, man, our reach is out there, man. I mean, it's long. We're reaching places we had no idea we were going to reach. And you know what happens from that? Because we had no idea that God was giving us that reach. The scripture says in verse 8, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. We've become a model. The message of the Lord just rings out from us. And notice what it said. It's the Lord's message that rings out. It's not your message. It's not my message. I don't have a message of Trent. It's the Lord's message that rings out from the deeply impressed upon life. He says, and your faith in God has become known everywhere. Notice what it didn't say. It didn't say accepted everywhere. It says known everywhere. God's never promised that the message, his message, ringing out from our lives is going to be accepted by everyone, but it'll be made known to everyone. He hasn't called us to be catchers of men in Matthew 4, 19. He's called us to be fishers, right? So the Lord's message rings out and is known everywhere. And he says, therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. God established your testimony. In God it's wrong. We don't even need to say anything. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. He's literally saying to these guys, man, your life, you imitating the model of Christ in your life has spoken for you. We don't have to speak for you. Your life is declaring. That in itself is an awesome image. It says, and they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And what he's basically saying right there is they tell, this message that's ringing out, they tell how you've turned, when he says idols, and then he contrasts it with the living and true God, what he's basically saying is the dead and false idols. And the contrast is you've turned to the true and living God. It goes without saying, right, that the idols are false and dead. The contrast is true and living God. And that's what people are looking for. People are looking for that. That's what they're... You know what people aren't looking for? They're not looking for perfection. That's not what people are looking for. People aren't looking for perfection. They're just looking for people who live out what they say they believe. That's all they're looking for. They're not looking for you to walk on water, man. They're not looking for you to raise up dead people. They want you to be honest when you've been dishonest. They want you to work when you've avoided work and you've stolen. They want you to be a giver when you used to be greedy. They want you to be a server when you used to be the center of your own world and everyone had to serve you. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for a transition. They're looking for you turning from one thing to something else. That's all people are looking for. And there's nothing more beautiful. And the scripture says it right there. They tell how you turned. 
They tell how, there is nothing more beautiful than to be able to tell people how God stepped into your life and changed things. Amen. I was just at a funeral Friday, running to a guy I probably haven't seen in 25 years. And every time I run into people that I was raised with, and I hadn't seen him for years, it's always the same old story. Trent, this is what I heard. I heard you were preaching. Well, I'm down there in a suit and tie. I'm about to do this funeral. I hope I am. That's in my back of my mind. I'm like, uh, Captain Obvious, right? No, but that's what they want to say. That's what they want to say. They, they want to say. They want to say. They, they, man, I, I, I didn't see that coming. Like I saw it coming. And then I get to share with them, not things I've done, not that blah blah blah. All oh, what God has done. They see from one place to another, but then I get to tell them the how-to. The how behind the change. And the beauty of Jesus. And the goodness and the mercy of, of Jesus. And then that scripture, and believe it or not, we're at verse 10. And we're going to close with this. Now, this might be a long verse 10, but this is the last verse. Maybe. It's never good when I say it's the last verse and I go for the water. Mm. Never good. Verse 1, Thessalonians, or uh, ch chapter 1, verse 10. This is what it reads. After saying all these things, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait, listen, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now Paul was with them for three weeks. In the five chapters of 1 Thessalonians, he reasserts on five different occasions the message of the second coming of Jesus. This was their hope. This was what everything was anchored in. And in every chapter, he reasserts this truth. What does that mean? That means in those three weeks, the Apostle Paul must have shared on multiple occasions this truth of the hope that we have in a soon coming king. And in that hope, their faith was anchored, which produced imitators and models for Jesus. Yet he hadn't come back. But they remained obedient to the gospel and to Jesus and would remain obedient until the reality of the coming of Jesus, whether corporately or individually, had come to fruition. Their intention, their, their desire is to be obedient until the end. And they ultimately ask Paul and he responds... Regarding the second coming. They ask him multiple times regarding it. And he reasserts it to them the faithfulness of Jesus. And the certainty of his return. And from that hope is born energy and strength and stamina. And assurance and endurance 
to remain faithful and obedient even when you don't understand the task or the calling that God has placed in your life and the requirement of the obedience to accomplish those things. Because there's times in our lives when we do just feel like we're spinning our wheel. And we know God's called us to a given task. And we're not really sure. We can't necessarily navigate it. We can't necessarily discern exactly what the desirable outcome is for God. But He's called us to it. And yet we, we have to commit to it. To be obedient even when we can't see over and beyond the act of obedience, understanding that there's a purpose in the obedience. And we have to maintain it. And we have to be that. And the world's watching us. But there is no wasted obedience. We know this, right? Ray Vanderlaan. Anybody know Ray Vanderlaan? That the world may know. Westminster Seminary graduate teaches in Israel, told a parable about obedience that I will read to you today. And this is what he said in this parable of obedience and understanding of God. He said, There was a rabbi who would get up every morning to go down to the synagogue to read the scriptures before the sun came up. He was faithful and had done it his entire adult life. And one morning as he was coming down, suddenly a voice from heaven spoke to him and said, Rabbi, said the Holy One, I'm pleased with your devotion to the reading of the scripture. Oh, thank you, Holy One, said the rabbi. I'm blessed to be able to do it. But the Holy One said, but I have one request of you. I would like to have you push on that boulder over there every morning as hard as you can on the way to the synagogue to read the scriptures. The rabbi looked at the boulder that was as big as his house, but since the Holy One had asked, he conceded to push the boulder from then on. Every morning he, on his way to the synagogue, would push on the boulder until the muscles in his arms, backs and legs would bulge and sweat would pour down from his brow. And then after pushing on the boulder, he would, he would proceed to, to go on to the synagogue to read the scriptures. Then one morning the evil one met him at the boulder while he was pushing on it. Why push on the boulder, said the evil one. Because the Holy One asked me to, said the rabbi. But you haven't moved the boulder. You can't move the boulder. You can't do what the Holy One has asked. The rabbi looked at the stone that had not moved a bit. And cursed be the evil one, he was right. He couldn't move the stone. So discouraged, he took a new way down to the synagogue and he bypassed the boulder for some months. Then one day the voice from heaven spoke to him again saying, Rabbi, I've missed you at the boulder. Oh, holy one, said the rabbi, I couldn't do what you asked. I couldn't move the stone. Move the stone, said the holy one. Who said anything about moving the stone? 
Have you not noticed how strong your legs have gotten that have enabled you to carry help to the poor? Have you not noticed how strong your arms have gotten to draw water for the widows? I've never asked you to move the stone. I've just asked you to be obedient. And then the rabbi understood the whole purpose behind pushing of the stone. It really had nothing to do with the stone. It had to do with being obedient to the Holy One, to God. And God was doing something that the rabbi could not even recognize. And I say to you today, man, you feel like you're pushing on stones in your life? And you feel like it's repetitious? It's not moving? And nothing's being accomplished? I say to you, Take inventory of what God is doing in your heart and your being. There is strength being built in you through the task of obedience to ready you to be a model and an imitator of God that reaches further than you ever thought you could reach. But sometimes it happens in the conundrum of confusion and doubt and purpose of the obedience. But he hasn't called us to understand all those things. He's just called us to be that. And he will work out your strength, your stamina, and the purpose of the obedience. Stand with me this morning. I'm just going to ask Carrie to come for a moment. Listen, I'm going to give you a second. We're going to pray for Stephen Hedge before we leave today. But I'm going to give you a second. I don't know what boulder you're pushing on. I have no idea. But I'm going to ask you to just bow your head for a moment, please. Close your eyes. I, I want you to enter into that prayer closet. You and God right now. I don't know how big that stone is. I don't know how heavy it is. But if God's called you to push there, I would say to you with all the resolve that God's Spirit can grant you, I say push! Push and push! Never stop pushing! That's what he's called you to, to be obedient to. Allow him to work out the ancillary things. And the time will come, and it might not be today. It might not even be next week, next month, or even next year. But the time will come when the value of pushing on that stone in your life will come to light. And you will say, the whole time I thought I was wasting myself. And the entire time, God was increasing himself in me and through me. So you're, you're in a tough spot, though, right now. You're, you're the boulder pusher. You're the boulder pusher this morning. And maybe you just need to come and say, Lord... Uh,
I'm pretty tired of pushing on the boulder, but you've called me to the boulder, and I want resolve to maintain this position and continue to push. You need some resolve this morning to stay the course, to continue to push? I'd say to you around these altars this morning, we can pray. You can pray, and you can find resolve in Jesus to maintain to continue being faithful and obedient and allow God to make himself known in and through you and to reach, to reach out of your life. If that's you this morning, you just need a time to pray. These altars are going to be open. They're open right now. This is for you, my brother, my sister. This is your moment.